Channel 10. <laughs> Check it out. Before we get into this episode of the Channel 10 podcast, we just have a couple of announcements to make. Co-host of the Channel 10 podcast, Singard Superior, has his project out now, Koros. That's K-O-U-R-O-S. Check it out on iTunes, Apple Music, Tidal. You know, wherever you get music, if it's not there at this time, it's going to be there very, very shortly. So make sure you go and support Sengard Superior, Koros. It's a dope project by Dope MC slash producer. You know, very abstract and um, definitely something that you're really going to enjoy just getting into listening and picking apart. And, you know, just check it out. Trust me. As always, check out Channel10Podcast.com. There you can get all the back episodes that we have also click on the store link and uh, you can purchase channel 10 podcast t-shirts and hoodies and other merchandise Um, it's definitely a great way to support the show also uh, make sure you subscribe on itunes on stitcher on google play music on pocket cash on podcast addict wherever you can just subscribe rate like favorite comment you know whatever it is that you can do just show some love tell a friend to tell a friend about some of the amazing content that we have here and um also do all the same for the wu-tang podcast which is the channel 10 podcast presentation and production uh we're gonna go through all the wu-tang projects and break them down for you for all the wu-tang fans and all the real hip-hop heads out there um and just you know show us love singardsuperior.com coros project out uh, as always, the almighty AR.com. That's my website. Check out my back catalog. New music coming soon. And channel10podcast.com. We used to be like, see you then, channel 10. And we used to think that people would catch on. You know but if it. you're not from Queen, <laughs> if you don't got Time Warner or whatever. Like, well, I got to do it, yo. Yo, roll up, man. It's a different channel, son. Roll up, on, man. Roll up, watch the channel, son. Different plane now, man. So good. Well, what up? All good, baby. In every hood, son. Well, what up? CNN Network Channel and, uh, 10. It's I'm on again. Street niggas is grown men. Stay in place, yo. Crime lace. Cast more beef than Scarface. CNN Network Channel 10. It's on again. Street niggas is grown men. Bold face. Gather your face. Stay in place, yo. Crime lace. Cast more beef than Scarface. Yo. Yo. Welcome back once again. It's the Channel 10 Podcast. It is I, the Almighty ARR Tick in the building. And I'm alongside Singer Superior. And uh, we're back once again with a very special guest who goes by the name of Brandon Soderberg. Say what's up to the people. What's up? Hey man, and um, you know, Brandon, um, he uh is the what is the deputy editor for the Baltimore City paper? Uh, yeah, deputy editor, which I don't totally even know what that means, but uh, I do a lot of stuff. And I'm also the arts editor, which includes obviously being like sort of the music critic, music editor. Right, right. And, um, you know, we had some, you know, back and forth trying to schedule this because uh, you were just coming back from the conventions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was at the RNC in Cleveland and then I was at the DNC in Philadelphia the past two weeks. So, yeah, I wanted to do this sooner, but I was not. I was so tired and right. so uh, so terrified of Trump people. <laughs> oh, what was that experience like? Uh, it was interesting. I'm glad I did it. Um, it was it it was it was an interesting way to sort of see all the stuff 
the, whatever's happening in the country or as the country sort of fraying, fraying at the seams or whatever. It was interesting to see all of these different kinds of people in this one area, especially like when the RNC, it was um, um, mostly this, this, these sort of Trump supporter maniacs and then a lot of uh, groups of activists um, trying to counter that. Um, specifically, there was a march on the first day that was uh, started with a uh, um, concert by uh, Prophets of Rage, like Chuck D and Rage Against the Machine and Be Real from Cypress Hills Project. Mm-hmm. And then after that, there was a march that went from where they were, which was uh, like West 47th Street down to downtown Cleveland, which was like West 10th Street. So it's like a two or three mile march. That was sort of built up in part because of the people who had come to see this free uh, Chuck D concert. So that was really cool. And Chuck D was there and he marched for a while. It was a really cool experience. But uh, overall, it was just very strange. There's lots of, you could see, you see so much of, you see these people that represent what's so, so you, can you curse on this podcast? You can, right? Right. Fuck yeah. (laughs) I don't know why I, because, you could just see all these different kind of fucked up, strange people, especially on the right wing, all kind of gathered together, which makes it a kind of weird, terrifying, uh, safe space for racists, especially. And it was really strange to see that um, in a way so blatant and so sort of party supported. But I'm also always, always in some ways inspired and motivated by like protesters and the protest scene. It was really great to see a lot of people out there either marching against this stuff or kind of doing even kind of weird performance arts things just to fuck with the people specifically uh there was a dude that i met named turner fair who was an activist and he kind of did this extended uh performance the last night of the rnc while trump was uh trump was speaking which included uh he was sort of there was so many police there he was walking down this line of police and he was commenting on like their like physical attributes as if he were like a at a slave auction and it really was like a really dark and like really like in, interesting way to comment on the police and in a way subtly tell remind people of like the origins of policing which is like you know t- tied back to slave patrol so those kind of uh this like sort of protest as spectacle was like what was really interesting and then at the dnc it was a little more straightforward um it was mostly just a lot of people that were really mad that bernie sanders wasn't the nominee which I'm sympathetic to, um, but it was a little more, uh, it felt more like Bonnaroo for Bernie Sanders. Mm. Something (laughs) strange. Uh, So, um, so you, so you covering, uh, the conventions, uh, does that in some weird way, does that like, uh, go under the category of art since you are the, the the arts editor? Uh, how does it work? Cause I'm, I'm always, I've always been like really curious about these, these, uh, these names and stuff like that. When it comes to uh, publications, yeah. Well, I, I I think it all in some well. So no, I mean it does in a way. I'm I'm kind of working on a project that I don't know what'll happen with it yet. I was also there for this project as well, which I'm kind of trying to work on something about like the contemporary rap music, contemporary hip hop, and protest. So I was kind of there for my own personal project, which I'm not sure what that's going to be yet. Mm. Um, but I was also there for the paper, and I've sort of, especially since the uprising, when I sort of by necessity went out and covered a lot of the protests back then and because i was interested in them and 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 felt felt strongly about them uh i've sort of become a half a semi-reporter so maybe so there i wasn't really there much for art stuff i was really just there for the paper because we decided to go we also had 
um, two other photographers there, Joe Giordano and Reggie Thomas, and then um, our editor, Karen Hooper, was there. So we wasn't really there as any, in any arts capacity at all, I guess. Um, it was more there, I guess, as like just... As, I guess I was there in part because I had experience during protests and marches and stuff, and there was a lot of concern that something bad could happen and it was understood that I could probably handle myself if something bad happens. So, Mm. um, I, I mean, I kind of went there a little bit interested in how music intersected with it, but it kind of just didn't, um, you know, like the I went to the rock and roll hall of fame because you can get in it for free that week. And it was kind of a joke, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and there was, but there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't a lot of music. I mean, it was interesting. Like, again, like this March was interesting perspective of like, it was kind of, powered by Chuck D and Prophets of Rage, they sort of gathered these people to march. So that was kind of interesting. But I was almost there like as a reporter for the paper, which is something I've sort of been doing in the past year and a half more. It's like doing some reporting on protests, reporting on police, crime reporting stuff. Mm. Now, I guess to take it back um, to, you know, your beginnings and origins and, you know, how you even got to the position of, um you know, being able to do these types of things. Um, are you originally from Baltimore? Uh, yes, I am. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and uh, what was your upbringing like? Okay, so I uh, I grew up in, like, Highland Town area, and then um, then into the... Then my grandparents, which I spent a lot of time with when I was little, because my parents were kind of screw-arounds, uh, was in the um, that area, and then into the county, like, Essex, Dundalk. Some, like, white trash, like Baltimore <laughs> trash, basically. Uh and then um, when, when I was a little older, my parents did what all white people do, which is you move to, like, the county. And, we, and I moved to Hartford County, which was, like, a culture shock for me as, like, in high school especially. Um, but, but my family's from Baltimore, too, and so I, like, was always in the city a lot. Um, and then I would still—and then once I could drive and stuff, I was, I came back into the city for, like, shows and stuff. But— um, yeah, and then uh, I went to school at Goucher College, which is right outside the city. It's just like a small liberal arts school. Again, exactly the kind of school that someone like me should should have gone to. Um, <laughs> and I guess, and I went there for like literature or something, but um, I really just kind of learned to write there. And then when I got out of school, I started teaching, um, but I was kind of bored and started writing for fun about... Uh, rap music on like a blog which was a blog spot back in like 2007 or so um and i mostly wrote about rap music because i was just really that was my main interest in trying to apply some and i had done some weird like papers and college papers and shit that i kind of tied to rap music um and then i guess specifically if it's specifically another thing about it which is not to get too heavy is like a really good friend of mine killed himself at the beginning of 2007 and that kind of motivated me more to like write and try to like write my way out of feeling terrible about everything and um which in it obviously which in that way was that's making something kind of terrible and something kind of positive i guess but like that's when i sort of started to write and for whatever reason some of the blog stuff i had written just on a blog spot bounced around a little bit here and there and i started to slowly write for other publications like i first wrote the first thing i first publication i ever wrote for other than a blog was city paper i wrote a review of underground kings by ugk and comments finding forever and that was like the first published thing i ever wrote really beyond my blog and then i sort of just have kept doing it for a bunch of places since then so i've been doing this for like 
almost a decade, which is kind of crazy to think about. Hmm. <laughs> now you um now, now I read that you uh your you first started with rap um buying ice cubes. It was a good day on Casingle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which I yeah that was like the first thing I bought, which was like when I was a kid. Which is just you know you you're. I don't know, you have MTV, and you're like, I'm supposed to like music. I'm just, I don't know what I like or anything. But for whatever reason, that song grabbed me, which is funny to think about. Because I think when I've written about that, I point out that the other single I bought was The Spin Doctor. So it's not right. like, let's not, I wasn't a cool kid. I just was a, you know, you, you hear what you like. But I think it's interesting. I think that's more of an interesting story about where rap music was when I was really young. Because I would have been like, I was like eight, eight years old when that happened, like when that came out. So like, um i think that's more of a good story of how rap and like this golden era was in a in a way at least kind of accessible and so important and like i feel like in a lot of ways it informed me in ways i didn't realize at the time but i'm realizing now or like being young and like you're like oh. again like i don't know why when you're in like whatever grabs you when you're in fourth or fifth grade you don't know what you like or why you like it but i was just like this goodie mob CD is pretty good. So like, but I still listen to that stuff. Like I, like I, I had to take a long drive a couple weeks ago because my parents live in Delaware now. And I, I drove and listened to like all of soul food by goodie mob, like three times. Like that was like, just like, I, and I don't have a car anymore. So it's like fun to listen to it in a car, but that's a funny story. But I, I'm, I, I always want to make it sh clear. I'm not trying to say that I was really cool when I was eight. I was just a dumb kid who stumbled upon, Ice Cube on MTV or The Box and thought it was a cool song. Yeah. <laughs> I remember The Box. A lot of people don't remember that in those days. Yeah. <laughs> the Box is like life changing for me as like a weird kid, though. So, like, seeing this so much more than, again, being the thing where you're like, I'm a dumb kid. What's on TV? I'm supposed to watch this. Okay. And then, like, being like, oh, wait, there's shit that MTV doesn't play. You know what I mean? Like, it was really interesting. I think that was really formative for me in some ways for whatever that's worth. Mm. that's dope so um now you started off with your blog spot uh no trivia um now how do you like how did it happen that you were able to um you know i guess leverage that blog into writing for these bigger publications um you know starting in 2007 and you said that you wrote for the city paper like how did that come to be uh i mean i think i think most of it was probably just luck like um to briefly, I guess it would be, I think there was a weird moment, which I now sort of, without, I don't want to get into it too much because it's boring, I guess, but like, there was a weird moment where like blogs and stuff, I mean, it's around the time of like, nah, right. And all that stuff was blowing up. So like blogs and rap were like coinciding in that moment. And, uh, it was right, you know, when all, like what well, was right that moment when mixtapes started to move onto the internet and away from like the streets or, you know, like there was all the, the internet started to inform rap in these ways that in the way that all music is being informed by the internet now, I feel like rap was like ahead of the curve on that. So there was just an audience for that stuff. And, um, and I also think that a lot of which I don't even really feel strongly that way about anymore. Cause I'm not, you know, it was almost a decade ago. I hope I'd be smarter now than I was then. But like, I also was like trying to approach stuff from like new perspectives and sometimes it was like fine being kind of controversial or pissing people off. And that probably helped too. Cause people like to read. Maybe I, maybe I was being a clickbait person before I realized it. Clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think it was a mix of that. And then I lucked out though, because, um, 
there there's a dude tom bryan he used to write a run a blog rap well i guess a pop culture music blog for the village voice called status ain't hood and tom was is from baltimore i didn't know him other than on the internet but i think maybe the fact that he saw this other weird annoying white kid talking about rap on the internet who was from baltimore interested him a little um and he recommended me the city papers he had written for them i think he had been an intern for them so um and i just sort of sent some notes over and then i met with an editor brett mccabe from the paper and he was like yeah try a review and i sent that idea um and and then after that i just sort of started to try to do it more like i said like i don't want to yeah like hmm I guess what I'm trying to say is like, for me, there was also this weird kind of uh, obsessiveness about trying to just write a lot and write constantly. Cause really, as I sort of said earlier, like it was a really bad time in my life. So like writing was like a way of just hiding from everyone, which I'm sure ever, so many people can relate with other kinds of like art forms and stuff. So it was like really um, just, I had a kind of an obsessiveness about it. And that's then, you know, like stuff would spread or get bounced around and, I wrote for some blogs and stuff. And then at some point, and like once I started writing for city paper, I was like, Oh wow, you can like make some money off of this. And that's kind of cool too. And like, it wasn't, it wasn't like money I could live on, but you know, it was like beer or weed money or whatever. And that was nice. Um, to get like, to get like $150 to like, I wrote, I think the first long thing I wrote was a Devin. It was about Devin, the dude for the city paper. Cause Devin, the dude was playing here. And I wrote like an 800 word essay about Devin, the dude and got like 150 bucks. It was like, this is crazy. Like I've been doing this for a year almost for free and then I get money for it. And I sort of started to do it more. Um, I think, I think after that, I think I started to write a little bit for the village voice, which, you know, there's like the New York alternative paper because I knew some people there. Um, and started writing a little bit about other stuff too. I tried to like kind of consciously diversify what I was writing about. Like I didn't want to just write about music. Didn't just want to write about rap. So started did some film stuff, some music video writing. And I sort of built from there and I just tried to like keep reaching out to different publications. And then, um, and then, uh, the beginning of 2011 or the end of 2010, like I, like I wrote for, started writing for pitchfork, which, was a notable website so that got you know like each one gets you in the more uh, in another door basically you know what i'm saying like and then um and then i got then spin magazine at the time was trying to basically like reach out and not be so lame i think so they reached out to me and i started writing for them in 2011 and became sort of a contributing writer to spin and then at that point it became my full-time job because they were paying me enough wasn't a whole lot but i didn't need a whole lot to live on so I was, I was able to like, like just write, you know, in between writing for spin with like a certain amount of money I get and then writing for here and there, I was able to live on that. But for years before I was teaching, I managed a Borders bookstore. <laughs> I managed a weird used record store, bookstore, video game store in Raleigh. I lived in Raleigh for a while, whatever. So like I was sort of doing a lot of stuff and writing on the side for fun and like for my sanity. And then I had this moment in like 2011 where I got an offer to like do it kind of full time. So then I did wrote for spin until 2014 and that's when the city paper was hiring and I applied for the job, which at that time was like, it was like a fact checker job. And also they were like, you can, we'll hire you for this. And you can also be the music editor. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. And then that's, that was May, 2014. And then that's where I've been ever since. And then I moved from that job to what was called managing editor, which was sort of third in charge. And then 
still doing arts editing stuff. And then more recently, I've become the deputy editor, which really just means kind of the person under the person in charge, I guess. Like, yeah. So that's that. Mm. So, okay. So, uh, so during like your earlier, um, I guess your, your more formative years when, when it came to writing, do you think um, teaching in any kind of way um, kind of shaped your, your, uh, your writing style in a way? Because I, I I'm, I'm, I'm currently a teacher and I kind of find that slowly but surely I'm kind of seeing my writing you know, change over time because of my teaching. And then also, um, like how much were you writing during this time? Um, yeah, well, for, for, well, I mean, how much was I writing? It's like, okay, so like when I had a blog and was doing that for fun, I would try to, I kind of obsessively would try to update it either Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or if I wasn't, if I missed Monday for whatever reason, I was like, okay, then I'm going to do Tuesday and Thursday. So, so I tried to obsessively write, a, I, let, I tried to keep people coming. So I was writing mm-hmm. like, uh, you know, two to three things a week. And then when I, even when I, and that's sort of the clip I stayed at when I did it full-time freelance, like, you know, I ended up writing two or three things a week. Um, and these were usually like essays. Like it wasn't like, just like, I'm like, if it were for song reviews, it was an essay. Like I've always tried to do long form or lo- relatively long form stuff. Um, mm-hmm. With teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, because it's, because I think that I taught 11th graders. So I found that, I think that kids kids have a lot of insight and so you start to see things differently and you start to value opinions that are, that maybe aren't being valued like you should obviously listen to young people they know a lot they're really smart and they don't have a filter they haven't been like ruined by a lot of bullshit that ruins grown-ups so they often have really interesting perspectives and i really because i taught literature so it's really cool to hear like an 11th grader who might be like this book reminds me of this this video game. I was like, all right, cool. Tell me why. Like, I'm glad you thought about this hard enough to have an answer. You know what I mean? Um, and then, but I also think what the teaching did is like, I tried to steal stuff that I kind of liked about teachers in my life, or even writers or whatever. Which is like almost like a multi-disciplinary thing of like trying to pull things from different parts of either pop culture or history or whatever to like tie it all together like so you so this thing is like this other thing okay like you know and that was and that's something i try to do my writing which is like i try to be instructive or explanatory which out without being i guess too like didactic like a teacher like an ideal teacher kind of moves you in a direction and you don't always realize you're being moved in that direction does that make sense you know like Mm -hmm. like like you have a lesson but you don't you don't you know or obviously like you, you have a lesson and you don't want to like just be speaking at the kids. You want to find ways into that audience. So I think especially sort of considering an audience teaching was really good because it was like, okay, I can kind of predict how these kids are going to take this. And today I want to maybe like fuck with the kids. So maybe I'm going to come back from this perspective. So sometimes writing would be like, this piece of writing. I want to kind of upset people's expectations. This kind of want to like make them feel comfortable and explain it. But sorry, I interrupted one of y'all. You're about to say something. I apologize. I was going to say like a Socratic type of method. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or like, um, like, you know, like, I know you said him on the podcast, and uh, he's a friend of mine, too. But like, you hear that, you see that so much with D. Watkins stuff, too, the way he's able to mix like, anecdotal stuff with like a history lesson with like some jokes, you know what I mean? Like, that's like an ideal balance where you're kind of telling people about things from a few different perspectives. Ideally, one of them will hit them, you know, if like, 
the energy isn't, if they're not feeling your energy, well, maybe they'll feel what you have to say. If they're not feeling what you have to say, maybe they're just, maybe you're telling about something that's new. So like with writing, sometimes you're just like, this song is great. Here's why I like it. Sometimes you're like, this song is politically important. Here's why it's good or whatever. So yeah. So I think teaching is, I think especially just in short, like considering your audience, like predicting or trying your best to predict how your audience will like take what you're saying or whatever. That's like a big thing that I learned from teaching is like trying to cater an argument or a point towards the group of people you're speaking to. And then also in that way, that mm. often, that often that helps you look at it from a different perspective yourself, you know? Mm. So I guess one of the, um, I guess one of the questions that I had was, um, what advice do you have for aspiring writers? So, but I kind of have two things that I've gotten from you so far. One is what D Watkins said, which is like, write every day. Like how you said you write obsessively and then, um, you know, consider your audience, um, which I think is very important, um, as well. And, um, I think that, you know, I guess when you're writing for yourself, sometimes you don't necessarily do that. Um, but you know, I guess the teaching kind of brought that perspective to you as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and like, and I'd also stress that with consider your audience, like it means consider them. It doesn't mean like just give them exactly what they want or whatever, but just like realize you're trying to communicate to other people. At least I I am like, I understand if you're writing for your own, you know, personal reasons or whatever, you don't have to do that. But I do think that like, um, consider your audience in the sense of like, why the fuck would someone stop and read this thing? What am I providing them with? And ideally, you want to provide them with a lot of things. Like I try to cram a lot of stuff into this when I write, like I try to be like, yeah, I might give you some history. I might try to make some suggestions about stuff you should check out. I might also be making some sort of point. I might be trying to tie it to some larger point or whatever, like political or historical stuff. Um, I mean, the other thing I would really, my other piece of advice, I guess, is like edit your shit, edit, 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 like write it, look at it and come back to it. Whether that means you write it, you edit it, and then you come back to it 10 minutes later the next day. But I think I can't stress that enough. Like for me, writing is like a really slow process of like, I get my ideas out and then I make those ideas make sense or make those ideas palatable to people. And I think that like, sometimes we have this myth and for some people it is this way. It's just not that way for me. It's like, sometimes we have this thing that like writing is like, Oh, it's just a burst of inspiration. And like, maybe more creative writing, not the kind of nonfiction-y stuff that I do, which is like journalism or criticism could be like that. But for me, it's always like you write it and then you try to make it better. And then you try to come back to it the next day or an hour later, or you go, you sleep and in your sleep, you might think of five other ideas to plug into that, you know? So that's my thing is like editing, like trying to try to keep working on the thing. It's like, it's like, it's like a, it's like you're, it's it's i'm trying to think of it it's just like then then it becomes more like a like a skill than a talent or whatever because then you're kind of like you know it's like if you're like building a chair or whatever like sometimes you know there's things you gotta like you gotta paint the chair you gotta do all these things to the chair to make it a chair you don't just sort of like cram it all right it's done you know and so i think that like i try to see it as like that like come back to the thing reconsider it try to look at it from different perspectives like try to really clean get that thing in like really good shape I think that's that's my biggest thing is I think people don't edit their writing and they really should. And I think it's kind of a, and it's also because I edit a lot of people's writing nowadays. So I see it and just like it's like, man, this place is this piece is pretty good. But if they had like. Taken a walk around the block and sat back down in front of their computer and just like considered looked at it one more time because it's so much better. So that's my thing is like always 
take it slower if you can, I guess. So what are, um, I'm just curious to know, uh, what are some of the pieces that you've written um, in your career so far that you're most proud of? Um, hmm, okay, so one thing I'd say is that, like, I, anything I, I, I really try not to look back too much. Like, I think that's, I'm really opposed to nostalgia. <laughs> but, um, so, and I often feel like when I go back and see stuff I wrote, it's, like, good, but uh, I don't feel much about it. Um, so I'm kind of really focused on whatever I'm doing in the past couple months or whatever. But um, let me think about that. Uh, I wrote a thing. I mean, I'm really proud in a way, even though it's not music writing so much. I'm really proud of the stuff that I did and other people did during the Baltimore Uprising. Like when we were just out there reporting on this shit as it was happening and doing our best to make sense of it and introduce characters and stuff. We weren't trying to report on it from a really sort of simple news perspective. We were trying to like give you the characters and make it feel like you were there. I still feel really proud of some of that stuff. And specifically there's a piece I wrote after the uprising that was about um, the music I heard during the uprising, like what I heard people listening to, what I heard people chanting, what I heard people like listening to, out of their cars and stuff like that and um i like that piece a lot uh i think i feel pretty i feel pretty good about all my club music stuff over the years like um the first thing i ever wrote about club music was a thing about trying to differentiate philly jersey and baltimore club this went back in like 2008 or nine and i've sort of kept up with like doing these club pieces for the city paper every year or so that kind of keep moving in a new direction um, there's a piece there in like 2013 called Baltimore Club Year Zero that kind of tried to look at where the scene was at that moment. I like that piece. Um, I wrote a piece for City Paper in 2014, right when I got here, about Miss Tony, the club vocalist. Like it was kind of a biography piece about him. Feel good about that. And then more recently, I wrote a piece for Fact Magazine, the British website. That was sort of about Miss Tony and Sandtown and West Baltimore and kind of tied Baltimore Club and all that stuff to the uprising. I like that piece a lot. Uh, that's those are those are a couple, I guess, or a few. Uh, that's, know, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. And um, and also your what your moments in Club Sixty One digressions about Baltimore Club music. Yeah, that was that was pretty. Uh, it's really interesting. Like, uh, is there like a back like a, what's the backstory behind this piece? It's pretty curious about it. Oh, cool. So, um, I think a lot of, so, so basically that piece is like six, it's 61 different things. Some of are like, some of them are quotes. Some of them are quotes from people about club music. Some of them are quotes that have nothing to do with club music in any direct way, but felt, felt like they're about club music. Mm -hmm. So sort of in a couple of ways, like the one thing is like, you have Al Shipley on the show, who's been working on this book about club music that I'm like super excited that he's writing and also kind of super excited that he's taking so long on it because I really think that's the way to cover it. But I found, which maybe he's found as well. I don't know that like his club music history is so complicated and so fractured. And so what I really wanted to try to do was write about the club music history, write about the big moments, write about the small weird moments that a, that a more conventional history would lose out to. Like that would just be like the kind of shit that like when it comes down to it, you're like, this isn't that important. It's getting cut out. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to try to contain all those things and the best way I could think to do it and also maybe capture some of the like fracturedness of the club music history and scene was through that and then trying to tie it to other things. Um, 
I guess one of the things I've been trying to do, uh, I, f- I feel very pretentious talking about writing like this, but I'll keep going again. <laughs> uh, I feel like I've been trying to write things lately that feel like the topic. Like I'm trying to experiment more with like how I write or like how the prose is or whatever. And so I felt like something was kind of fractured into a bunch of different pieces of like had a lot of energy to it was kind of how it felt like to hear club music or to go out and like dance to club music. So I didn't want it to be a sort of like more conventional history. And also specifically in that club issue, we had a history of the paradox, we had a history of unruly records. So Brett and Casey who wrote those pieces kind of did all the heavy lifting for me. So I could kind of go and like jerk around a little bit, which is, I guess is what I kind of did with that. Um, so that was kind of the idea was like, put these quotes, put these anecdotes, you know, like one anecdote that's like interesting, but what do you do with it is like, I mentioned this thing of like, uh, there was that day, that week where it was 2010, I guess, when Kanye's beautiful dark twisted fantasy and the Nicki Minaj pink Friday record came out and they both have slight club music elements to them. Mm-hmm. And that was like, a thing I thought was interesting. Like the one Nicki song in there just has like a straight up club music beat, which also, as I mentioned in that piece, has been rumored to be produced by a club person, a club producer here. Um, and then the Kanye record is a couple of times, but like the think, like the, the think, the James Brown think sample comes in in a club music way. Um, and all the lights to me sounds like tear the club up by DJ class. So like, I was just wanted to be like, this was a strange thing that happened. You know, there had been this interesting club music by the mainstream because of Lil John has a, a lot of other stuff because DJ Class's song was almost a hit. And then these two things come out. So like now if you're writing like a conventional history of club music, that's just not going to stick around because it doesn't, it's not an important moment, but I think it's a telling moment. So it's a way to kind of contain all those telling moments. And also like when you write about club music, I always worry. I always, my fear is always you leave people out. And so I figured if I wrote this really long sprawling thing that didn't need to have like a conventional like narrative to it or story, it would be easier to kind of make sure I got everybody in there. You know what I mean? Like, okay. Even if it's only mentioned briefly, like, uh, I don't know, like Dookie man gets in there, like all these people that like, when you come down to it, like sometimes people just fall out of the narrative and that's not always fair to those people because history always sort of leans towards the big personalities or the biggest personalities or the most controversial ones or whatever, or the biggest hit makers. And the story of club music, especially is not about that. So it's like, if I write this kind of like strange, weird piece with a lot of different things happening in it, then I can kind of touch on as many kinds of many producers, many DJs, many personalities, many ideas as possible, which I just wouldn't be able to do if that was like, here is the history of club music. Like a lot of those small moments would be lost, I guess. Right. Uh, So I guess, Oh. Uh, well, well, so I guess in I guess in in a more literary sense, uh, so this kind of writing style, I guess, similar to something a bit avant garde, like a, like an E. E. Cummings or something like that, in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that. I mean, I don't want to compare myself to that because that's, <laughs> that's I'm just some dick writing for a newspaper. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think what in part also maybe it's just because like I have to write so much for the paper these days. I get bored or I want to challenge myself, and so sometimes I try to find. Like, again, this idea of, like, well, what can I do to keep this, like, keep my energy up, keep my interest up, and how can I keep growing as a writer? And so um, that's one of those two of, like, yeah, like a slightly, like, like, also, in a weird way, I am interested in, like, trying to have writing that reflects the times and maybe, like, conventional narratives and maybe, like, single voices 
or single ideas like doesn't really fit the world right now because it seems so supremely fucked up and also we all are like on our phones all the time we're all doing 50 different things we're on twitter we're talking to someone we're on snapchat so like maybe trying to do writing that somehow feels more i guess like distracted like the world is or more like um like i wrote a piece earlier in the year that was um called f the city up that was about like I'll do a like kind of like what I was calling like Baltimore's avant-garde to sort of use that word that you mentioned like um and all that music to me when you listen to this these specifically these three Abdul Ali, JPEG Mafia and Great Office it's music that itself sounds kind of broken or fractured which I think kind of fits the times um and so I was trying to maybe try to make my writing feel like that too where it almost feels like some like a piece of writing that was like broken into a bunch of pieces and then like glued back together so it's not all perfect or you know you ripped a piece of paper up and taped it back together like trying to just reflect how messy everything feels to me i guess which i guess is maybe what what you know which is just a matter of reflecting the times i guess which is i guess what yeah and like trying to tell stories too like that's my other thing is like really increasingly interested in telling other people's stories especially as a critic for so long especially as a critic who just looks at my old criticism a lot of it and i'm like I was wrong, or I didn't actually know what the fuck I was talking about yet, and shouldn't even reviewed that. I was an asshole. Like trying to tell, trying to use what I do to tell other people's stories more than just just delivering more of my like asshole opinions on stuff. Right. Um, now I was curious to know um, your relationship with the Baltimore, you know, hip hop community and just the arts community in general. Um, did that start after you got more into journalism or were you into it kind of before then? Um, I think that I made a more concerted effort. So I didn't live in the city from 2009 to 2013. It was, or 2012. Wait, yeah, 2013. So I lived in North Carolina and then I lived in New Jersey for a while, mostly because of um I was in New Jersey because I was writing a lot, so I wanted to be near New York, but not in New York. But I moved back in 2013 and really tried to like throw myself into it in a way. Like I never felt confident before that of feeling like I had much to say or contribute beyond just like my opinions, most of which I now feel like were wrong or short-sighted or poorly delivered. Um, and so I think when I I've had more confidence and more energy and just felt more so I really, when I, and, I, and in a way, I think I just stumbled upon a moment where a lot of stuff was sort of shifting in the city, in part because we have this, like, good and, you know, a music scene that's sort of popping up, but also a lot of, like, bad gentrification and the increased, like, problems in, like, with, I think, the segregation of the city is because it was becoming more and more apparent. And so I felt more interested in trying to dig into that and dive into it. And I also just had more time and more experience with it. I had, I was living in the city again. I like started walking everywhere and really made a decision. Like I'm back in the city. I haven't been here for a few years. I missed a lot of stuff. I'd come back a lot, but I was just not, I might come, you know, I was here a lot, but I tried to be more involved in the scene in a real way. And I also was fortunate enough to like, right before I moved back, I met uh, Lawrence Bernie, who's, uh, one of the best writers in Baltimore, in my opinion. Um, we knew each other from the internet. We grabbed food one day and became good, kind of quick friends. And then he moved. Um, he happened to move into like an apartment like two doors down from me, as did Abdul Ali. So I started to know these, know Lawrence, who was a real like 
involved involved organizer of stuff. Like I just hear about things more. I was suddenly like had a direct like connection to this stuff rather than like hearing what I was seeing because people were sending it to me. I might be able to. Uh, I was just seeing it happen more and play out more, and that was part of it too. I don't know if I really answered your question. I'm sorry, but uh, I think it, it really was a decision. Like, okay, I feel like I feel more confident that I actually know what I'm talking about, and I realized that at some point I was I didn't know what I was talking about, and I tried to really. It, it basically became a thing of like in every way, like I'm going to listen more. I'm going to listen to more music here. I'm going to listen to people here more. I'm going to try to feel it out, and I was just a more skilled and informed writer, and. So that's kind of how I think it happened. I just had more, I had more resources too. I just was like more comfortable. I wasn't, I was writing, which also gave me a lot of free time when I was trying to write. And, you know, I used to work from eight, I used to work from 8 PM to 5 AM at a borders overnight, putting up books. And then I, and then I taught English from noon to three. So my, and I, and I just needed, I just needed, I didn't have a job. I didn't like, I needed money. I was, so I had to work a lot. So that also was a thing in the shows. Like I would be a big, like, I remember specifically, like, there was like, a like, like, I just remember like specifically just be a thing where I just wouldn't be able to go to shows as much. And then suddenly now I had more free time as I was writing only, which means, you know, you're kind of on your own schedule. And that just gave me a lot more free. I tried to take advantage of that. And do my best to catch up maybe what i have missed yeah that's a level i'm trying to get on yeah. because like just it. just for us to get a podcast out a lot of times is yeah. difficult yeah and i mean that's the thing that's cool I, this is going to devolve into a plug for your podcast but uh, that's what's that's what's encouraging about the podcast is like you guys knock it out a lot and i think that's one of the hardest things to do is like to really be consistent like same as like these single like right every day it's like I know you're not podcasting every day, but you're working towards another thing every day. And like it, the, the more time you have is better, but also if you have too much free time, then I think you kind of get, you can kind of get comfortable and not do anything either. But right. so I've kind of, you know, I, I, I figured out that balance by then I've been writing for two years full time. So I knew how to make me a schedule. I just knew what I was doing more. So it seemed like I knew I could do a better job than I would have years before in terms of covering things and cover like, it became no thing to go to like a show every night. You know what I'm saying? Like right. that would have been impossible when I was working two jobs and I did, you know, and all that stuff, but it was so much easier to go to a show. And then you start to go to these shows wherever they are. And you start to see these trends. You start to see these players, you start to see people that a year before were hanging out in the crowd and you're like, Oh shit, that's that guy in the crowd. Now he's on, now he's making music too. Like he was like, so you got to, you got to see, I like that. Um, which is also very similar to like the protest movement during the uprising was you would see these figures would show up and you're like, Oh, okay. That guy was just, I thought that guy was just a guy, but now he's leading a march. And that's kind of interesting. Just, just, you got like just observing and seeing this like ecosystem, whether it's a scene or a movement or whatever, like how all the players, how people start to fall in line in a good way and find their role. And by just being, it shows constantly, I was able to see that and then be more confident and like, I guess surveying it, or, or I felt like it was. Other people would say that I, I'm not good at it, but I'm just saying I felt confident enough to be like, "Here's what I'm seeing. Here's what I feel like is happening." Yeah, I think um, you know, just us being involved in the um, at least the Baltimore hip hop scene at a certain point in time, 
I guess like really heavy in between like 2000, what was it, 2004 to 2007 maybe. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to, you know, when you're in the inside of something looking out, it's really hard to see what in retrospect are going to be the things that um, are important at the time. So, you know, I definitely think it takes a certain skill to when you're in the storm to see exactly what parts of that storm are going to be the parts that you know, are the important parts, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think that one of my things which I learned from my editor at spin, which, um, who's a writer named Charles Aaron, who was a big fan of, and then I was fortunate enough to work with him was like, um, his thing to me though, whenever we would talk about stuff would be like, don't worry about what's just talk about what's happening. There's such an obsession sometimes, especially with the internet and shit to be like, this is the next big thing. This is what's popping off. And that's important. I think it's good to be like, Hey, pay attention to this person. But his advice to me so often was like, you know, like when you see something that people seem to be moving towards, like then it's worth looking at. And then it's not always like, well, is this thing good or bad? It's like, I don't know if it's good or bad. I just know people really like it. And that's really, obviously when you look at that on a mainstream level, it's really troubling, especially with like rap, because there's so many things pushing very specific kinds of artists. And we should definitely resist that. And we should definitely like writers, especially, especially critics, especially white critics like me should really be sensitive to how much we're being played by these like larger forces and telling us to like this or that. But when you just see a scene, you're like, I don't know. All I know is this dude's, really compelling when he performs and people really like him. And that's really easy to do on a local scene um, or whatever. Like, like we did a issue of spin that was sort of a hip hop issue. And the focus of it was, this would be end of 2011. So remember what was going on then. And our focus then was, I think it was on odd future, this group from Huntsville, Alabama named G side that were kind of an internet group. And then, Danny Brown. And so G side aren't a thing anymore. They were never really a huge thing, but we really liked them. We felt like they represented something, but we weren't trying to be like, these guys are the next. Although I would have loved if those guys had blown up. Um, although I don't think they wanted to blow up either, you know? Um, but what's really funny about that issue as instructive is like the other thing we almost did was something about black hippie. And we were all like, we don't know about these black hippie guys. It's just fucking hilarious. <laughs> we were so fucking wrong. But at least then we were like, well, this is what was popping off right now in these sectors. And we covered that. We totally shit the bed on covering like Black Hippie back in 2011. We blew it on that. But that's going to happen. And that's so I think when you sort of I think for me, it's always a thing of like, like that kind of ties into um, like, especially with the like with um, like locally, especially like Moose and then uh, Lord Scuda. Um, were interesting to me for those reasons or are interesting because I just start hearing their names everywhere. I start hearing their music out of cars. And so that was, it wouldn't, it was almost like, and for a paper like the city paper to cover that stuff was maybe strange at the time. Maybe it's still strange, but my thing, especially with Moose and Scooter when this, when they first were sort of popping off in like 2013 and 2014, it was a kind of a thing where I brought them to the paper and was like, people are seriously fucking with this stuff all over the city these guys are really big and that's what matters like we can like whether or not we should cover this it's almost like we should cover this because it matters to a lot of people and people are and they're kind of having this like weird organic build up of interest 
And that's sort of what I try to do with a lot of stuff. It's like, partially I try to be like, Hey, you should check this out because it's good. But I also try to just be like, it seems like this thing is bubbling up or moving up or people are caring about hearing the name a lot and seeing the person out a lot. And that I think is a, cause then, and that comes from like, then it adds like a sort of quasi scientific quality to it where you're like, a lot of people are talking about this and I have something to say about it. Or a lot of people are talking about this and that's interesting. You know, it comes that way. It's not so much star making, which I think, music writing has really gotten into where almost always music writing is nowadays is like a lot of it he's trying to tell you what you're supposed to care about you're not on to this guy and if you're not on to this guy you're lame you got to get on to this guy and it's like how many times are there these guys that like have like a, a month or a week or a song that we're all supposed to like they're the next big thing or whatever and it's like if they're a big thing and that you know if they're a big thing then that's worth covering but let's not Let's, we don't need to pretend this matters beyond it mattering right, right now. And I think that often music writing is like, this guy's going to be the next blah, blah, blah. And it's like, why don't we just stop worrying about that? Because we never, we never, music critics, again, especially white music critics, never write about that stuff. They never write, they're never right. They're almost, and they're, either they're never right or they're super behind because they like deem the next big thing, the next big thing long after he's been a big thing among people who are aware. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, it's kind of like the uh, the freshman ten type of situation, where like they're plucking these people. Hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So they pluck these people, and um, you know, fifty to sixty to maybe seventy percent, you never hear from again. Like the next year, sometimes it seems like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then oftentimes the one you have heard of, you're like, that dude should have been on the cover five years ago. Like, right, right. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, and I think that. In a way, that's a useful thing to, but like, yeah, it often feels, yeah, like we're, you know, like he was a good rapper, but like, I remember like Fred the Godson was on there one year. Like, what's that guy doing these days? You know, there's so many people (laughs) like that. And also the way that like with those two, where they start to be curated in a strange way, where like the freshman tennis, like, oh, we got to, there's always got to be now, there's always going to be like a goofy white rapper on the cover of it. Like, have all, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's these categories. Like, you're not really telling me, you're not really telling me anything I already know. And you're kind of like doing this in a weird, I don't know, like, it's like the weirdest kind. I don't know. I don't even know how to explain it. But yeah. And then I think, which I'm not trying to criticize anybody really, but there's just a thing that like a lot of magazines, a lot of websites do of just, there's too much of that focus on like, this is what you need to hear. And if you don't hear this, you're not cool. And it's like, mm-hmm. what's such a, and it's such, and that really favors artists who are good at certain things, either because they look a certain way or they have a lot of Twitter followers or whatever. And it really, I kind of sound like an old man right now. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> and I'm not saying it was ever any better because in other ways it's much more easy for artists to sort of bubble up and then the internet has to pay attention to them. Whereas in the past, like the labels sort of had much more of a lockdown and control on over it all. But there is something, there's something like, there's something about how we like, you have to sort of be good at social media and good at all that stuff. If you want to be a successful artist and that's kind of fucked up to like, we expect like creative people to also be good at like marketing themselves. That really shouldn't be how it works, but it is, I guess. And then, like I said, when you're in a local scene, you're like, I don't know who this guy was. I just went and saw him and these people want nuts for him. That's gotta mean something. All right. I'll go see him again in a week. 
And if you still, and then you start to like develop something or, you know what I mean? Like, like, like there, for example, like that, um, this dude, JPEG mafia, the rapper here who I like quite a bit. Like I, started, I just got into him like <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> yeah. So like I started to see, cause one of the things I do is like, I just like check Bandcamp. Like I just search the Baltimore hashtag on Bandcamp once a week and just see everything that's new that's on Bandcamp for Baltimore. It's like one, and they do a SoundCloud and a few other places um, to try to find whatever's what I haven't heard or what I haven't, you know, is new stuff. And like I started to see JPEG name back in like spring of 2015 and was like, oh, that's a funny name. Okay. His songs are like kind of crazy. And I maybe like reviewed a song or two, but was like, okay, let's see what's up with this guy, you know? And then I think I saw him perform and was like, oh, wow, this guy's fucking great. He's not just some, like, he's not just a funny, weird dude on the internet. Like, he can fucking rap. He can fucking perform. And then I was like, okay. Um, but the internet, I think, too often would be like, you got to hear this guy, JPEG Mafia. You know what I mean? Like, and they start, and then, like, and so it's interesting with someone like him who's sort of been recording. He's also, I know, because I did an interview with him, he's, record, he's been recording music and stuff for, like, almost a decade, but, like, he has, he was an example of somewhere. I was like, okay, his music is interesting, but sometimes that's not enough, in my opinion, you know, like, and maybe that's a problem, too, but, like, with a local scene, it's like, is he part of the scene? Do people really fuck with him? Is he, like, performing? Is he good at performing? Is he bad at it? What's he doing out there? And so, try to balance all those things out sometimes, and focus on that and then i think you can kind of gauge you know like i said a kind of quasi-scientific way like what what matters and part of it's just also i feel like i've been doing it long enough that sometimes i have like a good uh like i can see or hear someone and be like okay this guy or this person matters like people are gonna like this and like sometimes i'm right sometimes i'm wrong so, I'm curious to know. Uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, so I was going to say, like, so um, when it comes to, um, I guess, so, so um, over the years we've seen like the indie rock scene in Baltimore kind of, you know, kind of take shape with things like Wham City and stuff like that. So, do you think that, um, and although I guess the the avant garde like hip hop scene in Baltimore has always existed with people like I guess King Midas and and uh and, and rappers like that, do you think that um these kinds of like DIY spaces have kind of and in the indie uh, music scene overall, um, do you think that's kind of like shaped people like a JPEG Mafia and Abdul Ali and um, stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that there's kind of like one of my things is that DIY became this word that was branded by like scruffy white guys and with guitars. They kind of took that turn when mm-hmm. and they kind of branded and there and there was there's reasons for that and there's certainly a moment in time where like these dudes were putting on these shows next starts in like the early eighties, blah, 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 whatever. Who cares? I don't care. But like, but, um, but what I've been trying to stress is, um, how DIY has clearly always been us in the spirit of hip hop and dance music too. We just, we just, it just hasn't been branded that way. Um, cause clearly like back in the, you know, back in the forties or whatever, when like Charlie Parker's like fucking, driving across the country to play in clubs and like dodging fucking racists or showing up at a club and there's something like, you can't play here because you're black. So you go some place at someone's like restaurant or whatever. That's, that's the same kind of DIY spirit. And then I've been rereading, um, the book black music by Amiri Baraka, um, which mm-hmm. is sort of his, um, his jazz writing from the sixties, right? When like free jazz became a thing. And it's an interesting book. Cause it kind of captures what I'm kind of trying to blab about, which is this idea of like J 
just report on the shit as it's happening and let people 10 years later tell you actually what's important. Just be like, this is happening right now. And that book does a great job of that. And Baraka specifically uses the word do it yourself to describe all these jazz guys who were like coming. And also it's, it's very similar today where like the, it's the sixties and right now are very similar. So it was like these jazz musicians, like trying to find a new way to express an old form of music, which at this point rap is, you know, 40 years old jazz by that point was way older, but still like they were still like 20, 25 years out from like this rumblings of bebop and stuff. So like, these guys are all trying to figure it out and they're playing coffee houses. They're playing in lofts and where they're doing the same stuff, you know? So I want what I've tried to do in my writing with that stuff is like use the word DIY to not, and, and try to like use that word, expand what that word can mean. And then also it ties to a lot of like, there's just a way in which so often white people like me, um, we show up and we like to like claim that we invented shit, like the whole like, Columbusing of things. And like, there's kind of been that with, I think indie rock and punk rock where they're suddenly like, we've been putting shows on in our basements. Like, yeah, motherfuckers have been doing that forever. And a lot of people have been doing that because they literally were not allowed because of the country to play anywhere other than their basement. You know what I mean? Like, or, you know, uh, jazz musicians would play the super square shit that white people like, then they'd all find someone's house and they'd invite the cool people back and they'd play for 10 people the shit they wanted to play. And everyone would pass around a hat. They'd make 40 bucks or whatever. Like, there's a long history of that. And so I'm trying to suggest that what's happened is there's been a way in which the DIY impulses of Baltimore have sort of fused with the hip hop and dance community in cool, interesting ways. And so in a way, the simple narrative would be that the hip-hop scene in some ways has started to grab moves from the DIY scene, the white DIY scene. But I think the narrative really is that the, they're, finally, they're finally doing that because enough things have shifted or the cities where it is where they're allowed to do that because it's always been there. That impulse has always been there. It's not, DIY is not owned by like, Wham City kids, even though it comes of mess feel like that. So, um, you know what I mean? Like, there's kind of a it's it's a it becomes and also like a lot of it has a branding thing. And once you stop branding DIY, or like for example, um, this is a bit of a sidebar, but you know uh, our our mayor Stephanie Rawlings Blake um, was talking about Port Covington, which I'm not a big fan of. That's this Under Armour cult thing that they're building over, and. Um, and she was like, oh, it'll be great for millennials. And that's what her big argument is like, millennials will love it. And my colleague, Boehner Boehner Woods, joked, or not joked, but observed on Facebook to the mayor that, like, you know, Freddie Gray was a millennial. And it's like, what, what the mayor means by millennials is not people between a certain age and a certain age. She means a very certain kind of, like, white, well-to-do hipster type. And that's the same kind of stuff in a way that DIY can invoke. When in reality, like reality, like what is more DIY than this long history of like, especially like African American. I mean, what's more DIY than like hip hop, which is like okay, so hip hop starts in the early seventies in the Bronx because there's these gangs. These gangs are all are all in competition with each other. Of course, the gangs are all in competition with each other because the police are racist and they don't fucking do anything to actually organize these places other than beat people up and arrest everybody. So the gangs start to work all this shit out themselves because they're not, there's no police at all to do anything useful. So the gangs start figuring out ways that they can like 
form truces and shit. And they form these truces based on like partying and dancing and playing records. So that to me feels like a form of DIY because they're doing that by literally like pulling out speakers from people's houses and putting them in the park, you know, or like what's more DIY than like you live in the Bronx and it's the mid seventies and New York is a police state shithole and you have nothing. So you don't have, there's no more school programs, none of this. So you literally learn how to like turn records into new music, you know, like that feels very DIY to me, you know, I think that's more DIY than a bunch of like rich art kids dicking off in like a, a gallery somewhere for their friends. You know what I mean? But we don't have I mean, to look at it that way. I, mean, I could tell you some DIY stories of um, making beats <laughs> on a PlayStation and yeah, exactly. cutting the wires open and hooking it up to a computer to record the beat mono, to record it on some bootleg software. Like Exactly. Yeah, totally that's what like we that. used to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. And that, and that kind of, and what are you, Oh, sorry. I thought we disconnected for a second. Yeah. So the end, but then, and then the stories, yeah. And then those kind of stories can sometimes get lost or something, you know, or, or, you know, so much when, um, I can't remember if Boo Man talked to you about it when he was on your show. I'm thinking of another interview, but like him talking about how like those old, like, uh, ASR tens and shit they would use would like overheat. And they would have to like, and they sometimes would like put fans on. It's like, I'm making a beat. It's halfway recorded in the thing. I got to go to sleep. So I put four, like two fans over the ASR 10 and hope it doesn't like lose its memory by the morning. Like those are all DIY things are just like the long history of dance music in the country is always about people gathering in spaces that were maybe quasi illegal or not made for dancing and dancing, you know, or rapping or doing whatever. Like there's a long history of that. And I guess in a way I've been trying to make that I'm not the only person saying this, obviously it's not a particularly original thought, but just like trying to make that point a little like that. There's a long history of this and let's start trying to see that. And like, what do we mean when we say DIY? We shouldn't just mean again, nothing against Wham city, but we shouldn't just imagine a Wham city show circa 2007. We say DIY. We should be thinking of all these things. Like it goes back to sports, like sports, sports are the greatest way to explain anything to anybody. But like, you know, like think about like all the stories you hear about, like say the Negro Leagues players and all the stuff that they were doing. Like that was like DIY baseball. Like compared to the major leagues, like they were dealing with so much. They were like scrapping together, like whatever they could. They were hitting going into towns where they weren't accepted or downright hated or threatened. They were trying to just play baseball. It's the same kind of impulse, and that's obviously that is not an impulse that's in any way owned by again like white hipsters. <laughs> So what makes you um, it seems like, you know, you're very upfront to speak about race. Um, You know, what makes you, you know, just able to speak about it so freely and just not afraid when it seems like other people tend to dance around it a little bit? Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm probably just a loud mouth, but uh, I kind of feel like I mean, my stance on it is always that like. I I feel like I try to also listen and try to not speak over people too much <laughs> but um i just think that like it's a kind of cowardice i think that what i've realized among people my age especially going to like a liberal arts school of a thousand people which was you know most of most the majority of which by far were white was like the way in which white people also like living in the city and like like some like not like i'm not trying to i, don't, I have no cred let's be clear but like i just wasn't i like People of color and st- was not is not foreign to me, so I don't have quite the same kind of um, like I you know like I had black friends in school and like I have you know I know you know my parents were not were very anti racist 
So I like had a very like I was just like fortunate enough to be raised by like white people that weren't shitty about that stuff. And so for me, it becomes a thing where there's a kind of cowardice that white people sometimes do, especially like like because mostly I'm like I'm not trying to I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or give white people any credit. I'm trying to do the opposite. And so it seems to me like sometimes white people can use an excuse that they want to be sensitive to it to not talk about it. And that's kind of a cop out in a way of like, oh, well, I shouldn't speak on that. I agree you shouldn't speak on it if you're on in certain ways. But I also think that at a certain point, if you're not commenting on it, if you're not like acknowledging it, then you're kind of you're kind of like faking it or like half stepping. And I think that there's a lot of that. Like I think about um, like people who um, I just think you can use like politeness or respect a little bit sometimes as a, as a crutch to not comment on it or to cop out. And I think only white, only white people have that opportunity to do that, to be like, Oh, I don't want to comment on that because I, I should be respectful. And it's like, well, you want to be respectful, but at a certain point, you also don't want to be like kind of a coward about it or not addressing these major issues. So, and also for me, it's like something that was just like became so vividly clear again when the uprising here happened because just so many things that maybe like, okay, for me, when I was younger, I used to really think that Baltimore wasn't a super segregated city. And I think I thought that because, um, it wasn't segregated for me because I was white, obviously. So I wasn't sensitive to it, even if I thought I was. And I also would walk around Baltimore and you would feel like, okay, well, there's a diverse group of people here. One block might be majority white. One block next to it might be majority black. And I saw that as like, um, I saw that as like an example of how it wasn't segregated, how it was diverse. And what I started to realize later on, it's been, and then the uprising made this very clear, but I was realizing it before that was like, Oh no no! That's how segregated the city is. That's how like almost apartheid like it is. Is that there's places there's literally like, it's marked by streets. It's so and obviously there's the larger like East and West Baltimore versus what the paper and other people have called the White L of Baltimore, which is sort of this Hamden to Canton L of whiteness, you know. Um, and so that was like one of those things where it just became clear to me that if you're not if people aren't if you're not addressing these things or acknowledging it, you're kind of, especially in Baltimore, you're really kind of living, you're like living in a fantasy land, which again, I think it's very easy for white people to do. And then I also feel like it's another thing of just like, if you're going to be someone like me who writes a lot about black music, then you should obviously not shy away from talking about all the politics and also implicate yourself in it, which is what I at least try to do. I try to, without that even being its own cop out, but like, I really got sick of, um, I started to notice that there were a lot of white music critics that just talked about it as music and didn't want to see it in terms of politics. And really just was like turn up music to them or whatever. And that's really loaded and bad. And like, if you're going to be a critic of this shit, then you need to own it. You need to be real about it. So that's kind of a rambling answer, but I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, you know, I, um, well, so I'm currently based in Oklahoma and I've been here for about two years. Uh, and you know, whenever I come back to Baltimore, um, you know, it, the you know the city it changes, you know, every so often. And I just remember that one, uh, the one time when I went uh, downtown in the Mount Vernon area with uh, Arctic, and um, we went to this, we went to this bar, and you know, like just the uh, the whole scene, it just wasn't just wasn't the same. And you know, I'm not, I'm not sure about Arctic, but you know, I didn't feel that welcomed, um, to say the least. I mean, it's it's just interesting because like. 
we were speaking about this all fair about liberalism and um i guess you know a lot of times it seems like with liberalism how you were just saying how people are afraid to say certain things which is kind of interesting because i guess you get more of the donald trump crowd you get the more people who are more outwardly you know saying what they feel which makes it at least easier to have a conversation no matter how idiotic it would be but at least it's taking place whereas though sometimes you know when you have certain types of people they just want to be quiet about it you know yeah 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 i mean that's a way better version of what i was trying to say with like way less words yeah exactly <laughs> yeah i mean i mean like an example of that that i go back to real quick would be um there was one day last may where um the day it was a saturday in may and um it was when Martin O'Malley announced he was running for president, which obviously didn't work out too well. Oh, but, um, up on Federal Hill? <laughs> so I was like, all right, I'm going to go to this fucking shit show and check this out. So I went to that. And then the same day at City Hall, there was a Blue Lives Matter rally. Okay. So I was like, all right, this is going to be an interesting day. And I decided I was going to try to write about both of them. So I go to the O'Malley rally, and it's exactly what you'd expect. And a couple of protesters interrupted it and kind of called out O'Malley for like, the zero tolerance stuff, which was like a huge, like we, we, you know, really damaged the city irreparably in some ways. And the white people, these are, these are white liberal Democrats. And they were so mad at these protesters, most of whom were black for saying any of this. And they were hissing at, they were really mean and really aggressive. And then afterwards, they're kind of broke into these conversations outside in which it mostly was using O'Malley people confronting these protesters or other people of color there that kind of express some solidarity with the protesters and just being like, you don't even know what's right. You know, O'Malley, O'Malley did great things for you. So it's like this white person telling these black people who just told them that O'Malley wasn't great for them, telling them back. And that was very, and that was, and then you went over to this Blue Lives Matter rally and some protesters headed over there too. And in some ways, the Blue Lives Matter people were ma- way more hateful. They were way, saying way more offensive stuff. But it also ended up, in a way, opening up some conversation because it was at least a lot of people kind of like just yelling at each other, whereas opposed to like what you got at this O'Malley thing was just this sort of like, I know better than you. I'm, you know, I know how this all works. You don't yet kind of thing. And like, there's a weird tension there. Um, and obviously, I don't prefer. Klansmen like racist to white liberals but that doesn't mean that and especially like i think trump and that whole thing is really really scary for a lot of reasons but there's definitely a thing of like i think that there's absolutely a thing that white liberals are so scared to talk about race because they've been they've been taught that they don't that the racism is bad but they haven't been taught how to navigate it and they don't want to try to navigate my thing is like basically like as a white person it's kind of my duty to try and to get it wrong. Cause like the best I can do is try to talk about it, try to discuss it and to be white and to talk about race is to fail. And once you accept that, maybe you can actually have a conversation about it. Whereas if you're so worried about saying the wrong thing, or if you just see the conversation of race is just like something to tiptoe around where you're never going to talk about it, it's going to keep being this thing. And so that's why I try to be, try to be blunt about it when i talk about it or write about it because it seems like the more effective and more useful tool than to sort of to always be dancing around it always to be so scared you're gonna you're gonna offend people because especially if you're white like it's not like 
as we see over and over again, it's very you can be you can you can be racist in America if you're white and succeed. So it's totally like it's not a thing of like oh you know it just seems like it's a way of protecting themselves, like covering their own ass, and that's like that's just bullshit about everything. I really think that's a bad perspective, especially on these serious like loaded topics. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, like here in Oklahoma, I am. You know, I'm in I'm in academia up to a point, and so I'm just constantly in a sea of white liberalism. And you know, I've talked, you know, we've talked about it off air all the time. And um, I just have this thing that you know, a lot of times I I honestly feel that just blatant racism is better than like this liberal kind of you know racism in a weird way, because at least you know where you stand, and you don't have to try to deal with these weird, ambiguous kind of gray areas where you just don't really know like you know what you're getting into, or or you know you ha- you don't have to read as much into what into other other people's actions or like loaded statements that they may say right right yeah that's yeah that's yeah you know like it's often bounced around but there's also that um and it's come back a lot lately with this sort of hillary or trump thing and like i don't i think trump is a true like scary figure but like there's specifically like that thing that like like Martin Luther King says in letter to a a Birmingham jail about how like he thinks that like white moderates are the biggest obstacle towards like racial solidarity and i think that and i think especially in academia that's true i mean like like it's interesting too that you like like do you mind sharing an example of it or would you it's okay obviously if you'd rather not i'd just be curious to hear more specifically um dang you put me on the spot usually it's also usually usually it's always asking the questions um uh okay so um, for example, um, and uh, Artsy, I think you, you'll you'll know this quite a bit. So, um, you know, first of all, like I, you know, I have seminars and stuff like that. I'm a graduate student, and um, I'm the, currently I'm the only black person in my department. Anyway, um, so we were talking about a particular book, and you know, we're dealing with a kind of sect of you know history, whatever you want to call it, where this um particular historian said something about um how although although race is important. Um, race shouldn't be a factor in studying the history of the environment. And with that being said, a particular person really latched onto it. And the thing is, when when like when we read certain things like this, with these kind of like weird loaded statements, you know, you have to really like look into, you know, honestly, like, you know, like what time, like you know, what era the person was born in. And then also, um, I also have to try to remember in the back of my head that the people who, um, a lot of my colleagues, you know, they're not from, they're not from urban areas. They're like far deep in the West and like, you know, by the woods and shit. So they don't exactly have that much. Um, I guess to put it, to put it in layman's terms, I guess I'm the only person that comes from like an urban area, especially, um, during, um, in this class that I was in. And so to hear the kind of responses that a lot of people who were in the who were into um, this um, into the field of environmental history, they they kind of agreed with it. But they just they just forgot about the importance of race when it when it comes to issues with land, you know, how land was used as a factor, how you know, how racist it became over time, especially in the West. Um, So I guess it's right now. That's the the best example I could think of off the top of my head, because it's still kind of. Um, resonates in the back of my mind sometimes yeah 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 that's and this is how it's like it this this super loaded basically in a way i mean i was it's it's a racist statement whether it intends to be or not like became a given among these people very quickly like there wasn't even a question about it 
Right. And then and then the thing is like when when then when I said something about it, I'm like, whoa, whoa, wait, because because the thing is, I kind of study I kind of study it and. Um, a lot of my research deals with race when it comes to this fact that this that this man is talking about. And so um, when once I said that people, you know, they, they kind of got kind of scared. And then someone said, yeah, yeah, you know, black people and where are the Native Americans? And they just totally forgot my point. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. And then, then that becomes I've seen I've witnessed that, too. And I'm, I'm also would say that I'm sure many, many times. I've been guilty of doing that too, where it also becomes a thing where it's like, yeah, you're right. Okay. So you're right. Sorry. Let's move on. So then we never, then there's, then there's no real conversation about it. Cause it went from like, everyone agree with one thing to you speaking up and then they all agree with you and then they can still like keep it moving. And there's never any like give and take there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, one thing that you said, um, you had an article with Tariq Touré, um, and you said, uh, that uh, there's a section that stuck out to me. You said, because what does it mean to have a local hit poem on police brutality? It seems important to keep things in perspective and moving forward. What with the cottage industry of social justice oriented panels, conferences, documentaries, and the like since the Baltimore uprising. And you go on from there, but that just made me think, um, sometimes do you think that all of the social justice work and the activism and everything after the Baltimore uprising has become like commercialized and that people are exploiting it for personal gain? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's in some ways that's inevitable. Like I would certainly mm. make the argument you would, I would say that I wouldn't even make the argument. I would say that like, in some ways, like I'm, I'm exploiting it for personal gain. I work at a paper that is exploiting it for personal gain. Right. And we talked about this too. Like, is it even a bad thing? Right. But I, yeah. I right. And like, I know, so I don't want to, like, I don't want to, again, especially as a white person, don't want to be the person who determines who's real and who's not real. But I, but I do think that, um, and I, um, and I, I'm, I'm friends with Tariq. So like, we've talked about this stuff a lot too. Um, and that's kind of where that came from was like a text conversation we'd had before we did that interview. And like, we're just kind of chatting about it. Um, but I do think that you, we all want to try to, um, as writers or anyone who's involved is you want to, um, try to find at least a balance. Like you don't, I don't think it's good, especially for someone like me to ever be like, I'm not doing this, but you want to at least try to weigh out the good or the bad, or what am I contributing versus what I may be taking away. And, um, and so, and I think that what you really, what I see it especially with is on a larger scale nationally, as in like, there are certainly things here or there in the city that do that. But on a national scale, what I really worry about, especially as an editor, is the way in which we, white editors, white publications, which is most publications, really have commodified black voices in another way now. And so now there's, or, or commodified quote unquote, the struggle in a way that's problematic of like, um, you know, even in the way that like, um, so, okay. So, you know, like, for example, like Twitter or, you know, Twitter, like having these like stay woke shirts is like slightly troubling to me. And like, there's just examples. And what I see is the way in which it's another way in which, um, publications continue to sort of isolate black voices. Um, Again, not saying that I'm in a publication that doesn't probably also do that, but I've tried to be mindful of trying not to do it. And so you have a thing where it's like, okay, so now we need 
okay, so now social justice shit that gets like clicks and clicks equal advertising and advertising equal money for a publication. So let's do more of that. And then it starts to be, and then that can be really troubling. And then it sort of loses. Um, and then it becomes a thing where you sort of, you often have publications, um, where you'll, okay, for, I'll just name one. I don't care that much. It's like, um, pitchfork, the music website, I really noticed for a while, they had they started to do a blog on the side of their website, and the blog would often be music writing focused on like social justice issues. But the main critics, the main reviews would almost never be by white by black writers. And so, because like, what's that mean if you have a website? So now you've created this other like lane or this other vertical for your website where you allow this to happen. But why is it still sort of this division there? You know what I mean? And like that's that's I think, and then in specifically with Tarek's thing, it's like. I, I he I think what I was kind of asking him was like, does that dull the poem? Does it make you question it? Has it become a thing where people are like, yeah, poems like this are cool, so I like this poem. You know what I mean? Like trying to navigate. I, I can't imagine being a, a poet like Tariq and having to sort of navigate that. I wouldn't even know how to begin. But I think that's what I really worry about is whether or not, like, how do you? Is that it's just creating another way in which there's still these divisions, still this segregation? Because then it's like black voices are now useful for this thing for our for our publication instead of. And what I at least try to do with editors is always, almost always try as their editors, almost always try to. Clearly, I would want to defer to writers of color about issues that affect them, but I also try to really get writers that I know that are writers of color to not only write about. So not incur, but like I'm saying, if like there's an thing as an editor where you might be like, well, who could review the new Star Trek movie? And he might go straight to whatever seasoned film critic. Well, maybe ask someone else to do that, or maybe you know the same way you would ask if the same way you want this person's perspective on like police, or the same way you want this person's perspective on like this or on rap music. Maybe they should have a perspective. You should ask if they have a perspective on this stuff too. It doesn't have to be like a race angle, you know? Just like let's try to. And so that's what I I and I think that. It just, I imagine it would be hard to be a creative person addressing the country and things that are happening in the country through poetry or through music or anything like that. It's already hard to do. And I respect anyone who does it. I can only imagine more if you have to question, like, even more, like, why are people really, like, fucking with this? Is it because it's trendy? Do they really get it? Is it like they know that there's, again, it's the white liberal thing of, like, do they, they know they're supposed to be, like, down for the cause? So they, you know what I mean? Like, It'd be a really, it's a really complicated thing. And that's what I worry about is like, at what point is that kind of being commodified in a like toxic way, as opposed to like the work a day capitalism way that everything's commodified. Right. So just out of curiosity, um, I mean, you know, as a writer, even as a journalist and, you know, it's not necessarily considered creative writing, but to me, it's still like an art form, especially in in a certain type of way in which is done when it's storytelling um and you know the city paper does a lot of that so i was just curious to know like how does a city paper issue come together um and how you know do you put together what stories are going to make it and everything it's okay so um so i'm so in general we kind of have that's where you have like we're talking about editors at the beginning of this that's where editors sort of like do different roles so like i'm arts Mm -hmm. editor so i'm basically focused on like the section of the paper that's about the arts. And then I have two other editors, which are essentially my equals. Um, 
Rebecca Kirkman and Maura Callahan, they do respectively visual arts and stage. So we all come together and we're like, okay, what do we got this week? And generally the things that are in the paper are going to be, ideally we're trying to preview things that are happening or talk about things that just happened. Um, and then the news section kind of operates the same way. Um, so in a way it's just trying to like, again, like the whole thing of like what is happening or what, what is happening in the city is the main sort of push of the issue. And so in some ways it's just that, but what I do try to do, and sometimes we do it more explicitly. Um, I try to, I try to think the issue should have like everything should sort of talk to it, to other pieces. So like it might be a week if I'm like, let's say there's a news story or whatever. Oh, like for, here's a quick example was like, um, we had an issue where we got, um, Tariq Lawrence Brown, uh, Lester Spence, and E.R. Ship to talk about reparations. It was right when Ta-Nehisi Coates had sort of posed that question to Bernie Sanders about reparations. So we had essays from all four of those people about reparations. And I've been working on a piece about, like, looking at gangster rap and street rap as, like, music about trauma. And um, I had been working on it slowly, and I had quoted Lester's book in it. And I had also talked to Lawrence Brown. So I started to be like, oh, shit, like, let's put this in the same issue, because then maybe there's a way this all stuff is kind of converse, conversing with each other. And so that was just a small example. But sometimes you'll see, like, ways. Ideally, there's some kind of thread in the paper beyond just uh, it's a bunch of shit. There's some kind of, like, through line. And then sometimes what we sometimes do in overt or more subtle ways is create actually, like, themed issues. And some of those issues just go, like, actually, obviously for Pride, there was, like, a queer issue. And then, for example, with that issue, because it was recent, even with that issue, like, when I was, we were, okay, so this issue is going to focus on issues of the LGBTQ community. Okay, how do we want to do that? So then it becomes a thing of, like, all right, so we want to still have to try to address the Orlando shooting because it still weighs heavily on people. And then Lisa Stoughton McRae and I were talking about how, like, people, especially the trans community in the city, feels very unsafe around police. And so we're like, okay, so let's have a piece that talks about that. And then that way we also have, so on one level, it's like Orlando was scary from a terrorist uh, homophobia angle, but it was also scary for a lot of people here because when there was a vigil here, a lot of people felt very unsafe by having so many police around, even the police were there essentially to protect them. So then it's like, okay, so this thing's kind of, and then we had a really beautiful essay by Mara about her partner who's trans. And so then it was like, okay, so now we have sort of the really personal experience and the really like sort of larger newsy object quote-unquote objective experience so like i guess in short i'm always trying to find ways that and i work closely with karen hooper who's the editor of the paper who makes all the decisions ultimately to have some kind of like narrative through line or like that a lot of different voices are kind of all talking to each other in the paper all the pieces are a different voice and they're all kind of talking and so and that Mostly involves a lot of planning. So generally, we're trying to plan um, a few issues ahead. Either the whole issue is kind of planned, and then we're going to adjust for um, news and stuff that's breaking, or adjust for this or that. Or sometimes we just got a really good piece. Like I got a really nice piece today from a friend about Ellicott City and the the flood, and he lived there and has had a business. His his mother had a business that was destroyed, and so. That's the thing where we're like, okay, we're planning on putting that in the issue, but if we can put that in the issue, we should because it feels topical and important. Or this Corin Gaines 
thing um, out in the county right now, which is really a story that keeps getting more and more crazy, in my opinion. Like, we're trying to develop a story about that. So maybe we'll end up booting out something out of the issue to include that because that feels topical. So it's sort of always shuffling a lot of things around, planning a little bit of ahead, like, okay, this is what we're doing for this week. And then um, once we sort of have what's nailed down, you start to be like, what's missing from this issue? What would serve this issue better? And because the staff writes so much of it, that's helpful because sometimes that just means like, okay, this issue would be good if it had a thing about this in it. I'll write that thing. And then that'll kind of like glue it all together. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and so I'm curious that, you know, so, so with everything going on in Baltimore currently between the, you know, the Ellicott City flood and uh, the uprising, the, uh, the trials and everything like that, uh, do you guys as editors find it a bit hard, like a bit more difficult to, to fit in more, um, I guess, uh, like more um, op-ed articles from people in the city to get like that kind of inner, the inner workings of the city through a particular voice? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because on one level, I think getting those voices in is really important. But I also at the same time worry um, that sometimes, sometimes it's, there's a lot of places where those voices are, are at, and we want to serve those and let them speak. But you also, um, sometimes I feel like the kind of reporting that we do, which is essentially advocacy journalism, which is we don't we try to be fair we try to be firm but fair but we are not um we do not claim to be objective i think objectivity is a myth but we especially like i have a thing this week in the paper that's out tomorrow um about the rnc and the dnc protests and it's a reported piece but it's deeply opinionated and so sometimes i feel like our news is often a corrective to the more objective or supposedly objective sources such as the sun or local tv news and all that so sometimes we're balancing out and again that's the ideal is that maybe you can do a piece that's sort of reported and then a piece that's personal and that's when it more off eds or more like opinion pieces can maybe you serve and then ideally they can serve each other because then like you're getting a personal opinion from someone that's like deep in it and experienced it and wants to tell you how they feel about it and then at the same time a more news-oriented piece, maybe more widescreen about it, can kind of, or more like the cameras, you know, 100 feet in the air and observing the whole scene, not focusing on the one person, can help it too. So, and I also think that there is a tendency um, to, I think in a lot of ways, first-person essays and opinion pieces have been really, have really been like, important lately and that's really great but i feel like there's so many places where those are that sometimes we're trying to figure out which will serve it better or which will be more useful i guess um but you know like for example with like the reparations thing that was a really good example of like we have all these brilliant thinkers in the city that all of these different slightly different opinions are just vastly different takes on this thing let's allow them all like give them all a page and let them all kind of talk to each other and then ideally, I would hope someone would read them all. And then it's not about that way. It's not just like, here's what you think, but here's a lot of perspectives. And that feels like the city, you know, like, again, like you want a city to be places where people are chattering and talking to you. That's the vision of the city is people are close together talking. And maybe the paper tries to do that. So when we have a lot of different voices, whether that I guess that would be the maybe the shorter answer would be that 
I value op-eds and I value opinion pieces, but I try to th- I think in some ways everything we run is an opinion piece. Mm-hmm. Oh, so um, I guess um, going to, um, you know, everything that's going on with the, uh, with the city paper, um, I guess compared to uh, other forms of media as well, um, and then, you know, especially compared to The Sun, which is more so, I guess... Um, especially with Tribune, you know, taking over and everything um, and changes when it comes to that. Um, you know, has that affected anything at all? Or do you just just keep, um, you know, doing what you're kind of doing? Um, so I, I didn't work for this paper full time until after they were already bought by the Tribune. So I don't I don't know totally how it worked before then, but I worked for them. But I would say that that uh there's not really any difference um like they never tell us what to write about um if you look through it we probably do it we probably do it too much or have done it too much but i usually jab the sun here and there and i kind of we kind of sometimes do that on purpose to sort of be like let's see what they'll say or to fuck with them a little and there's some fun like <laughs> rivalry there and i kind of think that's like important like I mean, the really good example, um, which even doesn't seem that controversial, but like, and this is before I got here, but I know one of the first things that happened when the paper got here, it got, it got bought in March of 20, 2013. Wow. I think. I think it was 20. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, the, one of the first things they did when they got here, which was sort of Baynard, who's the old, had my old, had my job before I had an Evan, the former editor, was they were like, we're going to do a weed issue. And it was like, if if these corporate Sun Tribune people <laughs> let us do a weed issue, then they'll probably let us do what we want. And then there was a sex issue, and there's been a couple other times we really tried to push to see what they'll they'll resist, and they've never really said anything about it other than like sometimes they usually it's positive or like hey we like that or we like that or we thought that was funny or you know and there's a couple of times where people in the Sun building that are some people will like or dislike what we wrote, but that all seems like in healthy competition. We've never been told what to cover at all. Mm. If that's, that's sort of the short answer. I haven't, like, I don't have any, I don't have any, I've never gotten any orders from anyone up high and above to cover things in a certain way. Mm. So, so speaking of Baynard Woods, he, he wrote that iPad piece in, I think, uh, 2015. And he said that, um, his wife suggested that the archive of an alternative weekly is like James Joyce's Ulysses, Ulysses, a document from which a city could be rebuilt. So uh, I guess as of right now, what do you think is the state of the alternative weekly in the um, in the country? And um, does the state of the alternative weekly with the city paper, um, does it differ um, in Baltimore at all compared to like places like in Boston and so on and so forth? Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, the state of the alternative weekly, is it's it's dying <laughs> uh, it's dying like i don't i can't Im- i can't i can't imagine i wouldn't i would not i would be surprised if where if this paper exists in the current incarnation like five to ten years i'd be really surprised and that's fine um and but i think what i know that my approach to the paper is every week i get to work on this thing and it's about it's in part about getting shit out there to talk to the city, getting voices out there telling stories, but also like, what can I get away with? Like, maybe that's like the very childish part of me, but it's always like, what can we get away with? What, how can we push this? And then pushing the envelope doesn't always mean being offensive or controversial, but like, what can we do here? Like, 
Like, it's strange for an alt-weekly to send half its staff to the fucking RNC and the DNC to write about it, but I think, I hope it pays off. So, and I think in general, the state of the alt-weekly is that it's, here's my part thing about the alt-weekly is the alt-weeklies are papers that were created in the late 60s, early 70s by, like, white hippies, mostly dudes, and I don't like hippies, and I don't think that's something that was created by hippies should keep existing the way it is. So I try to fuck it up and try to be like, like I would hope it's a, it's a compliment to me when I run into older, right. Older readers of the paper who don't like where the paper is. I'm like, I I'm sorry. You don't enjoy it anymore, but that's a good sign. I, ho- I would hope the paper doesn't feel the same as it felt in 1995 or 1977 or whatever when it started. Like that's good. So, whereas I think a lot of other all weeklies, to be honest with you, are continuing that tradition in the worst sense, and they're they're not. They're still. I mean, I like some alt weeklies. I think the Washington City paper is a strong one. I think the Cleveland Scene is a really strong alt weekly. Um, there's a couple other ones. There's Independent Weekly in Raleigh, which I used to write for. I like that one, but there's a politeness that has taken over alt weeklies, which is maybe wise, and maybe that still will survive, and maybe that's well. They'll have the last laugh because they'll still be around and we're just a bunch of jerks fucking with people until they fire us all or whatever. But like, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, but I don't, I think that, but I think it's fine that the all weekly is dying because uh, stuff needs to die. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? like, like shit dies all the time. It doesn't, you know, it's not like there's not a glut of like good. I think that we do a certain thing and I hope, you know, and I, I think feel like the city would lose out if we were gone. But I also think that like other pla- other things would pop up in its place. Um, you know, I would I would I would hope that you know like someone like D or Lawrence Bernie or Tariq or whatever would be. I like uh, there should be more competition. Like it's lame that in Baltimore the city paper is sort of the like controversial. Like like really like our papers like the the controversial paper like that's not a particularly fresh exciting city if we're like the most controversial like. We should, there should be more competition. And so if we die because people don't give a shit about us anymore or someone, someone, or there's competition for us, or we're just destroyed the way everything is destroyed by like these larger forces of money and people in suits. But, um, I don't, I don't, it's a, I guess the, in short, like, yeah, we're, we're, we're the state of the all weeklies is it's like, oh, it's, it's like, it's on a, it's on a respirator. It's in the hospital. It's a way to get the plug pulled on it. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't like younger or more engaging things that'll replace that. You know what I mean? I think that's fine. I think that people are reading so much more. I don't think the internet's a bad thing. I read so much more shit. I'm exposed to so much more shit because of the internet. I'm not saying the internet's perfect, but um I I I don't I don't I like what I do and I want to do it as long as possible and I love it, but I'm not gonna mourn the loss of uh, a paper and a hippie newspaper that was birthed in the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> so, so on that day, I guess when the plug is pulled on the hippie newspaper, what do you do next? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I would probably, I have so, I feel like I have so much freedom here. It'd be hard to go working for someone. I get to, we get to whatever the fuck we want. Like that's really important to stress. Like that's really fun. 
Um, so I always feel like it's kind of a scam. Like I get, like we're getting over on everybody and we try to do, and we try to balance that. It's not, I hope the paper doesn't seem too indulgent. It's not just like whatever we want, but we have a lot of freedom. I don't know. Um, I don't know what I would do. I would probably keep writing. I would probably, but I probably wouldn't like, I don't want to, I don't think I'd want to go back to just doing like music writing. I'm sort of spoiled by like reporting. And I feel like a, more of a duty to the city and to like, the things that are happening to keep reporting. So I might try to do that, but I also wouldn't want to report in a more conventional way. So I kind of feel like in a way it's getting very depressing. I'm sorry, but like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, if a place was, would offer me the freedom that I get here close to it, I would take it. Um, but I don't know what I would do next. Maybe I go teach again. I don't know. Or like, you know, I have some other projects or I'd like to like, work on some book ideas and shit like that but those don't make any money so still have to find a job but like um i would want to try to find a place where i keep like doing the kind of ideally for me like art and politics collide all the time art culture all race all these things are colliding and you can really explore it through music but you shouldn't only explore it through music and so i would hope that maybe somewhere would want if someone else will post some weird shit like that 61 digressions thing, that would be awesome. If they will, I, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can always, um, you know, bring back your no trivia and start a podcast with it. Yeah, I'd probably, yeah, that, I'd probably just be another crew with a blog. I'd go back to being that, like, ranting and reading. Although, I don't know, I feel like that would be another thing. Is I like to reach a lot of people, and I like to... I don't know. I'd have to figure it out. That's a good question. I'm feeling very grim about the future because of that question, but that's okay. Oh, damn, <laughs> damn. That's cool. No, but um, I mean, I mean, that's just the state of the way things are now. You know, like um, just trying to get your voice out there. And it's funny because you you started blogging, I guess, towards the end of that golden age of blogging. I remember I had a blog in 2005, 2006, around that golden age. I'm like when still listen to gangster music was out and like all these different blogs and you know we kind of fell off at the time and if we would have kept going with it and we and you know inspired uh some of the other blogs that are popping now to keep going with it but you know now we're in this kind of age of podcasting and now with writing you have like you know outlets like medium and things like that which also you know i hear offer a little bit of money so yeah yeah there's mm-hmm. always something or like i think i really um like I really like podcasting is like an interesting format and there's people like it's a cool format like and that's that that'll keep happening and you know there there are things there are things that'll happen that I mean that's another thing is like I don't know um yeah there's just endless there's like there's so many other things happening and like stuff shouldn't stay the same so you shouldn't the same way I'm not I'm not super positive about the future of like the paper or print or, or journalism which is fine i don't doubt that there won't be more keep being new ways to like explore things or keep you know new ways to report or tell stories or give opinions those are always going to happen and like yeah like there's so much shit on medium that's really like just like shows up and you're like who the fuck is this person like right like, so much dis- there's still so much discovery basically like, there's still people you're like like some of the best stuff i read about the dnc the rnc was like people that were just there that were either there attending or just went there to see as a freak show and like wrote about it there's some really interesting stuff like that so yeah everybody will it, it'll be fine <laughs> if you're not trying to make money then you're fine <laughs> 
or <laughs> I, I feel that um man we've been going for a minute uh we definitely have to have you back on at some point man because it's definitely interesting um but um you know i guess in closing um one question that i want to ask is um to the outsider to the baltimore music scene in general um what acts would you in 2016 um what acts would you present as an introduction Hmm. Let me think about that for a second. Also, thanks for having me on. And I'm really thanks for letting me blab for so long. I've been talking a long time. <laughs> no, man, it's really interesting. Yeah. I'm glad it's interesting. And not. Um, I mean, that's hard. I don't know. Again, it kind of I'm maybe being copping out here, just doing that thing of like, I mean, I think that um, I think that like, even though he's I feel like the police have basically destroyed his career. I think that if you want to really understand a lot about Baltimore, Young Moose is really important to listen to, and I hope he gets to record more, and I hope he stops being fucked with by the police. Um, mm. um, I think that uh, I think Abdul Ali is really great. Um, I think that JPEG, Mafia, and Great Offline Mench are kind of really interesting. I think um, there's sort of a singer songwriter musician. I don't even know. Joy Postel is really good. Um, there's a, I mean, I think that in a way, I think that like a lot of the, I think Baltimore's in the middle, even despite Scooter's murder, we're in the middle of a really interesting moment for like essentially street rapper, gangster rap. Um, like uh, GMG Tato is, I think, really good. Uh, pre- this guy, President Davo, is really good. Um, there's a lot of people like that. YGGK, these people that like, and I guess what I stress with those people, I want to mention people like that because these are people that actually, like, with all due respect to say JPEG or Abdu or whoever, these other people I mentioned, like a Tato or something or Moose, like, people are actually listening to these things. It's not a small group of people. Like, a lot of people in the city are listening to these other rappers. And also because they have more mainstream appeal, obviously. But, um, but I, think, I, think, I think that if you wanted to understand the city more than anything, I really would say a lot of the, lot of the like, sort of, for lack of a better way of defining them or categorizing, it'll be the street rap stuff is really important. Um, but also, I think the sort of larger Lamadon collective um, which includes so many people and is sort of been bridging uh, the gap between the past and the present. Um, they've done stuff with some of the dudes I remember that were rapping maybe back in the mid to the late 2000s. Um, they do battles and the beat trip thing. Uh, there's so many Lamadon related people that I think are really great. I'd really, it's such a large collective of like creative people. Um, and they also do events. They did a really great, there was a boundary block party over in West Baltimore and they did a, beat trip at that and it was just like them providing beats and like a bunch of like five-year-olds rapped terribly but it was like one of the most amazing <laughs> it was so great just see a bunch of like there's a bunch of like five to ten year olds were like oh shit there's a mic and there's beats i can rap like that was really so i feel like that kind of community oriented stuff that they've been able to do the lamadon collective is really great um they did a thing at mundalman for light city and light city is kind of a joke in my opinion but i thought the thing they did at mundalman was really great so I really like those Lamadon guys. Uh, mm. um, and that, they're kind of a large, like there's so many figures that kind of pop out of that. That's kind of an all-encompassing. I mean, I'm basically recommending almost like 30 people by say, if you go to the Lamadon site, just start clicking on 
people. <laughs> um, hmm. And I think the club scene is interesting. I think it's always in a weird holding pattern, but um, for a lot of reasons, just because there's not clubs in the conventional sense that they dance at because the city has sort of shut them all down for one reason or another. Um, right. But yeah, obviously Mighty Mark is really important. Um, mm-hmm. DJ Juwan is really great. He's super, he's like 17 or 18. He's been DJing since he was like 13 or 14. I think there's a lot of good figures like that. And then you have these national, more national figures that I think are, feel like Baltimore, which is great. Like TTV artists has put out a record. Um, I just like Future Islands, blah, blah. That stuff is great too. Um, but uh, I like Future Islands a lot, but everyone knows about them. And even like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's not the right thing to say. I don't know the future like Kate Cobang exactly, but it's encouraging that he's like moving through the industry in a way that feels fairly organic. It doesn't, I feel like he hasn't yet done a song where I'm like, oh boy, that's, that's the sellout song. And that's nice, you know, like, so that's a bunch. Yeah, I remember when he was like 16 and he used to do songs with some of my peoples and he was like, and like, you know, they would tell me like, yo, he's, he's that guy, he's going to do it. And like years later, it's like, okay, like this seemed like an organic process because I was able to see it, you know, secondhand, but through people who saw it firsthand. So that seems real. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, I think that he's been trying to, um, I mean, it's just crazy in a way that he like had a, has like a hit song based on a rap song here from 2002. That's really interesting. He's done a really good job of like shouting out Tim Trees and that stuff. And I kind of really appreciate that. I think that's a good sign when. A lot of, I think a lot of other rappers maybe would have tried to like be like, nah, it's my song now, or tried to hide that element. I just think there's a lot of cool, that's a really encouraging moment. And it's, um, you know, I feel like in a way, there's such a, there's that, that I can't remember the name of the tape, tape that came out, it's the freestyle tape, but that he put out kind of recently, but he like parodied the cover of Views by Drake, and it's like Tate hanging off the side of like a, a vacant. Like that's such a brilliant, not even because it's like grimy or whatever. It's just such a brilliant counter to like the obnoxious, bougie rap of Drake, who's like in Toronto to be like, here's a parody of that cover. You know, I think that was really smart. I like that kind of stuff. So, hates encouraging as well. But I'm I'm babbling again. I'm sorry. I'll shut the fuck up. <laughs> no problem, man. Um, it's interesting because you know, just from my perspective, it's like, man, I haven't been in this scene in so long, like. You know, I just remember a lot of different names and now there's a whole lot of different names I need to catch up on and just catching up, you know, just reading your article and getting into JPEG Mafia, you know, just checking out his thing. I'm like, whoa, man, like, (laughs) yeah, this is pretty dope. Yeah, it's exciting. It all feels like the city, um, Mm. which has always been true. But I feel like there, whatever reason, there feels like there's a, it's a moment and it probably won't. I'm not, I don't ever want to be like, oh, it's Baltimore's time. Who knows if it's ever Baltimore's time. But like, it feels like a moment where a lot of different, there's a lot of crossing between it. Like, I feel like there's a lot of like lyricism going around, which like I still really, really like still is what grabs me always, even though I can be sympathetic to other kind of rap. It's always what I care about. But guys that can really rap in like a traditional way, which I think is important. There's a lot of fusion of like sounds and stuff. There's a lot of things going on and that's, that's encouraging. That's what's up, yeah. Well, I guess, um, man, we definitely got to have you back because there's a bunch of things here that we didn't even um, yeah. talk about <laughs> that we uh, had. Sorry. That's, this is fine, but yeah, it's like, I've, yeah, we were going to talk about Scooter for a little bit, but that's totally fine. Maybe we could, but yeah, whenever, yeah. 
I don't know if, if you ever have, I can be your, if a guest ever falls through, just call me and I'll, <laughs> I'll drink a coffee and talk for two fucking hours. <laughs> no doubt, man. Uh, definitely, man. Um, shout out all your social media, however people can link to. And um... uh, Yeah, I got no trivia on, uh, which is obviously a Wu-Tang reference as well. I you guys have the right, right. Wu-Tang podcast, which is great. Uh, no trivia on Twitter. Uh, who cares about Facebook? Uh, no trivia on Instagram. My Instagram is just like pictures of my dog and records. But if you want to check that out, um, check me out on Twitter and check out citypaper.com because I write so many things for that. That's about it. Twitter and Instagram, that'll work. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much once again. This has been another edition of the Channel 10 Podcast. And um, we out. Peace. Peace. Feeling this here. Yeah, son. Feel it, man. Roll up, son. You gotta just do it, yo. Yo, roll up, man. It's a different channel, son. Roll up, on, man. Roll up, watch the channel, son. Different plane now, man. It's all good. Roll up, all good, baby. In every hood, son. Roll up, yo. CNN Network Channel 10. It's on again. Street niggas is grown men. Bold face, got in your face. Stay in place, yo. Crime lace. Cast more beef than Scarface. CNN Network. Channel 10, it's on again. Street niggas, that's grown men. Bold face, gather your face. Stay in place, yo. Crime lace, catch more people.